Report is a weekly public affairs program providing independent media coverage of environmental and ecological studies with a focus on local, state, and regional people, issues, and events in order to foster open discussion of human relationships with nature and the earth and to encourage you to take personal responsibility for living sustainably in the world. Eco Report is produced by an independent team of volunteers working at the studios of Community Radio WFHB in Bloomington, Indiana. And financially supported by listeners like you. Good morning, and welcome to EcoReport. For WFHB, I'm Phil Casper. And I'm Juliana Daly. On Monday, Indiana Governor Eric Holcomb authorized the deployment of an Indiana Department of Homeland Security team to Florida in response to Hurricane Irma. The hurricane was rated as a Category 4 when it made landfall along Florida's Gulf Coast over the weekend. The storm caused extensive flooding and property damage in communities throughout the Sunshine State. The eight-person team from Indiana deployed to Tallahassee yesterday. It is expected to provide logistical support to overburdened rescue workers. According to a press release from the Indiana Department of Homeland Security, the team is expected to be deployed for two weeks. The team includes personnel from Indiana University, the Department of Homeland Security, the Department of Environmental Management, and Montgomery County Emergency Management. The team joins hundreds of electrical workers, volunteers, and aid personnel from across the state headed to Florida, many of whom have helped out with the relief efforts from Hurricane Harvey in Texas. Two state swift water rescue teams and a support team were sent to Texas last week. And the remnants of Hurricane Irma made their way across southern Indiana, northern Kentucky, and the Cincinnati area this week. Irma, now considered a tropical depression by the National Weather Service, is expected to dissipate over the country during the course of the next several days. The Category 4 hurricane is still causing widespread flooding in the southeastern U.S., In the Midwest, the storm is causing light winds up to 10 miles an hour and scattered rainfall. Irma's predecessor, Hurricane Harvey, made landfall along Texas' Gulf Coastline in late August. Following this storm, the Center for Biological Diversity examined industry data on releases of toxic air pollutants through flaring and spills from flooding in Houston. Unsurprisingly, post-Harvey Houston has a problem with toxic soup. Chemicals from a variety of sources are now in the water. According to the U.S. Environmental Protection Agency, at least 13 Superfund sites in the Houston area have been damaged by flooding. Runoff from chemical plants and oil and gas facilities has also mixed with the city's overflowing sewage system, causing concerns around drinking water systems. The center also determined that South Texas refineries and petrochemical plants released about 5 million pounds of chemicals. Among them were almost a million pounds of seven extremely toxic air pollutants, including the known carcinogen benzene. Major oil companies, including ExxonMobil and Chevron, were responsible for the emissions. For years, Houston has had some of the worst air pollution problems in the country. Before Harvey, the city had a significant problem with respiratory illnesses, especially asthma, because of the high levels of air pollution. 
According to Christina Costa, a climate change expert at the Center for American Progress, Houston's air pollution problems were worsened, quote, by the actions that Administrator Scott Pruitt's EPA has been taking to roll back or delay the implementation of common-sense public health protections, unquote. As we've reported in recent months, the overall budget of the EPA has been cut by 30 percent, and many senior scientists have been let go. There are several areas in Houston that could be considered, quote, sacrifice zones with regards to petrochemical pollution. The areas most heavily impacted by petrochemical pollution are located in East Houston. Recently, residents in West Houston were suddenly thrust into a sacrifice of another kind. Hundreds woke on Monday, August 28th, to discover four and five feet of water in their homes. This renewed flooding in an area where floodwaters had already peaked was caused by an intentional release of water from the city's Attics and Barker Reservoirs. The Army Corps of Engineers representatives have stated that this controlled release was necessary to prevent a more catastrophic breach of the reservoir's banks. The move also avoided a backup of, a backup of reservoir waters in neighborhoods further west. Multiple lawsuits have already been filed by home and business owners downstream, many of whose properties may remain underwater for weeks. The plaintiffs point to a 1996 Harris County Flood Control District report that predicted Harvey-level devastation without a significant investment in underground channels by the Army Corps of Engineers. In 2006, the Corps itself rated the dams in question among the top six most dangerous dams in the country. The suit seeks damages from city and county governments. The Army Corps of Engineers enjoys immunity in cases of flooding. Houston environmental activists have long questioned their city's inadequate flood infrastructure. An organization called Residents Against Flooding, founded in 2009, has protested against the growing risk facing neighborhoods not located in floodplains due to faulty city planning. Houston is the largest city in the U.S. to lack zoning laws. Unchecked, development of land that used to be prairie and farmland has contributed to the frequent overloading of existing infrastructure. It just so happens that the month of September is National Preparedness Month, and officials with the Federal Emergency Management Agency, FEMA, are urging families to put together emergency plans for homes and workplaces. More information on emergency preparedness can be found online at ready.gov September. The SHARE Act, which stands for Sportsman's Heritage and Recreational Enhancement Act of 2017, threatens all the U.S. national wilderness areas. The bill has been introduced in the House of Representatives. According to Wilderness Watch, quote, the SHARE Act is nothing more than a thinly disguised measure to gut the 1964 Wilderness Act and the protections afforded to every unit of America's 110 million acre National Wilderness Preservation System. Make no mistake, wilderness as we know it will cease to exist if the SHARE Act becomes law." The SHARE Act would permit extensive habitat manipulations in wilderness under the guise of wildlife conservation and emphasize hunting, fishing, and recreational shooting. 
It would allow the construction of roads, dams, buildings, and other structures in protected wilderness areas. Under the SHARE Act, those projects would be exempt from the National Environmental Policy Act, eliminating critical environmental analysis of potential impacts and alternatives and prohibiting public comment. Industrial agriculture is almost as bad as deforestation as a contributor to climate breakdown. That's according to a new study that quantified the amount of carbon that industrial farming takes from the soil. Published in PNAS, a journal published by the National Academy of Sciences, the study showed that in the last 200 years, 33 billion tons of carbon have been removed globally from the top seven feet or so of soil by industrial agriculture, and the rate is growing. Carbon in the soil that's released into the atmosphere from industrial farming is a leading cause of global warming. Industrial agriculture has helped deplete the carbon accumulated in the soil. Its widespread harvesting and tilling methods can increase erosion and rob carbon from the soil. One answer to this problem is regenerative agriculture, which uses more extensive ground cover to minimize erosion, greater diversity of crop rotation, and no-till farming. And finally... The Bloomington Sanitation Division is phasing out their old system of picking up, recycling, and trash, and phasing in a new model. According to a press release earlier this week, distribution of new waste and recycling bin began in the city on Monday, September the 11th, and will last through September the 28th. Members of the public can use the new carts beginning on October the 2nd, and the first pickup will occur from October 9th through the 19th. Old carts and recycling bins can be placed on the curb for disposal. The new trash and recycling bins will allow residents to not separate out their recycling. Under the current system, cans, plastic, cardboard, and glass all must be separated from one another. Unused trash stickers can be refunded from October 16th through the 18th at City Hall Showers Complex, although the city will be granting refunds after the 18th through the 28th at the Bloomington Community Farmers Market. After October 28th, people looking to refund their trash stickers will need to complete a form in person at City Hall. For Eco Report, I'm Phil Casper. And I'm Juliana Daly. We love to hear from our listeners. Contact us about stories we've aired. Or if you have ideas for future stories, please send emails to earth at wfhb.org. For today's Eager Report feature story, we join Norm Holy for the first half of his interview with Jeff Stant of the Indiana Forest Alliance. This is Norm Holy for WFHB, and today I'm talking with Jeff Stant, who is the executive director of the Indiana Forest Alliance, and uh, want to talk about the proposed cut in Yellowwood Forest. So what's going on there, Jeff? Well, the Division of Forestry has, is proposing to sell the timber uh, off of uh, 299 acres, uh, roughly 300 acres, in the heart of the, the Morgan Monroe Yellowwood backcountry area um, on the, in the Yellowwood part of it uh, in Brown County. Uh, and um, a 
timber sale of this size and scope has never occurred before in the backcountry area, uh, and uh, we think that they are violating the commitments that uh, were made way back when Governor Orr uh, uh, established this area as a backcountry area where its wild uh, character, its wilderness character, uh, was going to be conserved uh, for uh, wilderness recreation. Uh, And um, after that, then they've, they've, we've had uh, sustainable forestry uh, certifications done in the, across the state forests by the uh, National Auditing Agency Forest Stewardship Council, and they have given the Division of Forestry a, a green forestry label for logging sustainably, partly based on also the commitment of the Division of Forestry to maintain the backcountry areas in the state forests, which, is, which are just a, about 4.5% of the, the state forest acreage, but to maintain those areas as older forests going back into the old-growth forest condition because it's a very underrepresented uh, uh, forest age and condition in our state forests. And uh, we think that this proposed logging violates both the, the sustainable forestry audit commitments that the Division of Forestry has been making uh, for the last five years and uh, completely uh, uh, contradicts the whole spirit and intent of the backcountry area designation made by Governor Orr in 1980 for this area. Could you describe for us more the uh, the nature of of the woodlands that they're proposing to 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 log? That is, is it yeah, hill, hilly or ravines or that are beyond the century point as far as their age? We've been uh, part of this area is actually in our Eco Blitz survey area where we've been inventorying all the flora and fauna in. Uh, and uh, unlogged the older forest tract, its first uh, inventory of its kind ever done in the state forests. And uh, what we have found in, in coring the trees in that area that's inside the area they're proposing to log is that we have uh, trees that, uh, in most cases, the oldest ones are between 100 and 120 years old, but there are some parts of the stand where the oldest trees are between 150 and 200 years old. These trees indicate we're dealing with a stand of forest that is one of the oldest in the state forests anywhere and uh, that uh, is very underrepresented. Uh, the Division of Forestry would concede that, that, that old-growth forests are almost non-existent in the state forests and that the old... The, the forest class, age classes that are beyond 100 years old are, are small in number uh, proportional, proportionally to the whole state forest system. Uh, there's not many forests in the state forest where we do have the, the, the forest, the oldest trees in the forest more than a century old as a rule. And so that's what we're talking about is an old forest not very common anywhere in the state forest, or for the state of Indiana for that matter, and uh, very wild. I mean, it, it, endangered species, uh, state and federal, uh, rare, threatened, and endangered species have been uh, found in that forest in our survey. We found two different rattlesnake, timber rattlesnake dens. These are state endangered uh, uh, snakes that only live in the wildest 
uh, forests in South Central Indiana. Uh, there, in this forest, uh, two maternity roost uh, trees for the nationally endangered Indiana bat, and and numerous other examples of rare, threatened, or endangered species in this forest. It's one of the uh, most majestic and oldest forests left anywhere in our state forests. Uh, another reason this, this cut, proposed cut is so onerous is that unlike the, the previous cuts in the backcountry area, which were at the far southeastern and far northwestern corners of the backcountry area, these cuts are right in the heart of the area. They, they claim that, oh, it's going to be single tree selection and you, you won't even notice it in a few years. Well, all you have to do is hike if uh, you're willing to do some bushwhacking. Go to the areas they have cut in the backcountry area with this so-called single tree selection, and you'll see that it's very obvious that they were there logging uh, seven or eight years ago, and uh, it will be obvious for a long time to come. Uh, between the invasives and the fescue and all the stumps and the piles of, of dead logs that they piled up in the landing areas and left, it's very noticeable uh, that they've been cutting. And, and that's completely uh, antithetical to the whole mission of the backcountry area. It, it's, a, it's a repudiation of that mission. It's it making the human presence and the active logging of the area what you see. Are you an environmental activist, an expert on a particular issue of environmental concern, a concerned citizen interested in learning more about local and national environmental issues? EcoReport is seeking volunteer reporters to contribute short headline news stories as well as feature interviews. We provide all the technical training you'll need. For more information, email us at earth at wfhb.org or call 812-323-1200. And it's time now for In Nature, a segment focusing on the flora and fauna of South Central Indiana. This is In Nature. Eastern box turtles, or Terrapina carolina carolina, were in the recent past a common terrestrial turtle in the eastern United States. However, now this species is considered of special concern because of loss of habitat and because these turtles are often sold in the pet trade. It is against the law in Indiana to take a turtle from the wild. Eastern box turtles prefer moist, deciduous, or mixed bottomland forests and use shallow streams to cool off during warm weather. If the weather is particularly hot, the turtles will also submerge themselves in wet mud. Box turtles have a hinge on the bottom shell or plastron and have a high domed upper shell or carapace. They can pull their heads and limbs into their shell and tightly close it, foiling predators. Their shell coloration is brown, with a pattern of yellowish or orange radiating lines or spots. The males have red eyes and a plastron that is concave, allowing him purchase when he climbs on top of the female to inseminate her. The female has brown eyes and a flat plastron. Box turtles can live for 50 to 100 years and do not breed until they are about 10 years old. Once inseminated, the female can store viable sperm for up to four days. She lays her eggs in the soil from mid-May to early June, and the sun incubates them. A variety of predators feast on the eggs. Adding to their vulnerability, young turtles are unable to close the hinge of their shells until they are four or five years old. Eastern box turtles are omnivorous, eating fruit, earthworms, slugs, small insects, rotting meat, mushrooms, 
flowers, and berries. Because of their low metabolism, if food is not available, they can retreat into their shells and can wait until conditions are more favorable. Box turtles overwinter by digging into the soil, going deeper as the winter progresses. You've been listening to In Nature. And now it's time for our weekly events calendar. The Sassafras Audubon Society is hosting a visit to the Fairfax State Recreation Area, south of Bloomington, on Saturday, September the 16th, from 8 to 11 a.m. Meet Scott Evans at the Fairfax Beach parking lot. This area is considered one of the best birding areas in this part of the county. Monroe Lake's Furs, Fins, and Feathers annual celebration of hunting and fishing takes place at the Payne Town State Recreation Area at Monroe Lake this Saturday, September 16th from 1 to 5 p.m. Presentations include an electro-fishing demonstration, airborne hunters, furs and bones, and many drop-in activities. Presentations will take place in the vicinity of the activity center. Tea time will take place at Brown County State Park on Friday, September the 22nd from 11 a.m. to noon. Visitors can stop by the Nature Center and meet Patrick for this program, which gives participants the chance to try some tea made from plants found in Brown County State Park. Learn about tea history while making your own cup of tea. Nature Sound, Mammals, featuring musical guest Hoosier Darling, will be performing next Friday, September 22nd at RCA Community Park in Bloomington at 7.30 p.m. This event combines a live acoustic performance by local musicians with an educational nature presentation. Nature Sound encourages audience members to bring their own seating. Finally, the Sycamore Land Trust is hosting a tree identification hike next Saturday, September the 23rd from 10 a.m. to noon at Tangeman Woods. State Forester Ben McKinney is offering a hike through Tangeman Woods to identify trees by leaf and bark. RSVP by calling 812-336-5382, extension 100. And that wraps up our show for this week. Eco Report is brought to you in part by MPI Solar, a Bloomington business specializing in solar hot water, solar electricity, and solar hot air systems. MPI Solar designs and installs solar power generation systems that encourage independence and individual responsibility. Found locally at 812-334-4003 and on the web at mpisolarenergy.com. This week's news stories were written by Linda Green, Norm Holy, Wes Martin, Alex Davis, and Rebecca Mueller. Norm Holy produced our feature. Rebecca Mueller edited the script. Juliana Daly, myself, compiled our events calendar. Our engineers are Sarah Vaughn and Kirsten Payton. Executive producer is Wes Martin. For WFHB, I'm Juliana Daly. And I'm Phil Casper. Join us on Thursdays at 11.30 a.m. before Democracy Now! and on Fridays at 5 p.m. before Kite Line for our weekly radio rundown of ecological news. Until then, EcoReport encourages you to take direct action to defend the Earth. You've been listening to the Eco Report, A volunteer-powered production of Community Radio WFHB. In Bloomington, Indiana. Available for download and podcast at news.wfhb.org. Eco Report is your independent, ecologically inspired news source. For South Central Indiana. Bringing you news that the Earth wants you to hear. 
Send your comments, suggestions, and story ideas directly to the Eco Report staff. The email address is earth at wfhb.org. That's earth at wfhb.org. Thank you.